Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Hello and welcome, everyone. Happy Monday to all of you, wherever you may be. And I want to thank you for joining me for this live teaching today. I'm excited to bring you this very foundational teaching. Uh, I am trying to kind of continue to build on the teaching I did a couple of weeks ago about what to look for in a church. I'm going to be continuing that conversation today and in future weeks. Um, I want to talk about even a, a more foundational question than what to look for in a church, and that is, what is a church exactly? Now, I know this might sound like sort of a silly question, but whenever I teach on this issue and whenever I give this teaching that I'm going to share with you today, uh, people always approach me afterward and said, you know, this is so basic, but so revolutionary in how I see things about the church. And I've never really thought about these things before. So maybe possibly get ready for some new thoughts. Um, I hope to, uh, after I do this teaching today, next month, I'm going to continue the theme of the church. I'm going to talk more about godly leadership, which is something I talked about in the last teaching on what to look for in a church. One of the things I said at the end in the last third of the teaching is that one of the most important things I think to look for in a church is godly leadership. So I want to unpack that some more. I think I'm going to take two podcasts to unpack really what I think that means, because I I think what you're going to see is as we drill deeper on what is godly leadership, you're going to understand more of why I think that that is God's blueprint for a healthy church and the root of why so many of our evangelical churches are unhealthy. Okay, let's get into it. Um, When I was in seminary (laughs) during Bill Clinton's first presidency, very long time ago, um, I took a class on what is called ecclesiology. And this is a fancy seminary word. You can impress all your friends and family, ecclesiology. And this is basically a class on a doctrine of the church. And it's where aspiring seminary big heads try to figure out what a church is, okay? Um, Because seminary makes everything orders of magnitude more complicated, it seems. But I do remember my professor standing up in front of the class at one point and asking the question, what makes a church different than a baseball team or a 12-step program. And he then he just stood there in the awkward silence of it all. And at first, I have to tell you quite candidly, I didn't even really understand the question. And all I could think of, well, obviously a church is not the same thing as a baseball team or a 12-step program. But as we tried to answer his question, And I really wish I had a recording of that moment as we all try to grapple with um, defining what a church actually is. Probably pretty funny to listen to now. But my my professor's rather unconventional question really hits on an, an important point. And that is, what makes a church a church? I think we all kind of intuitively know, well, it's not the building per se, but yet we all have a building and it's good to have a building. It is a church, a group of people. What is it about the people that makes it a church and not a baseball team? Um, is it the functions that the people perform? You know, what is it really? And so that's what we're going to get into today. And I think a great place to start is with the words of Jesus. Uh, and this is, we're going to look at um, 
the gospel of Matthew here. And it's really the first time where the word church is used in the Bible. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16 here. Bob's going to put it on the screen for us. There it is. Magical from home. How he does this. I don't know. Um, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Now, if you listen to me for any length of time, you know that anytime that there's a place or a location, it's important to ask yourself, why is this here? Now, I have a whole podcast about geography in the Bible and why I think that understanding geography is critical to having accurate biblical conversations. So Caesarea Philippi should signal us as the, as the reader, oh, he's talking about um, a Gentile area. He's talking about a non-Jewish area. Okay. Who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, or you are the Messiah, the promised one, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church my ecclesia. This is where we get the word ecclesiology, doctrine of the church, okay? This is the first mention of the church in scripture. And it says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ or the Messiah. Okay, this is a very interesting um, little passage. And what I'm going to um, have Bob put on the, the screen here is a map. So you can see where Jesus was. Uh, he is from Capernaum. You can see there around the Sea of Galilee. And he goes up to Caesarea Philippi. So he is um, up in the Gentile realm of the Roman kingdom. And in the next slide that we have here, what I want you to notice is this is kind of an artist rendition of Caesarea Philippi. And most people, most scholars think that Jesus was standing in, in front of this area, giving this teaching. And what I want you to notice is between those two white buildings, you see those two white buildings there on the screen that kind of look like temples? And then in the middle, if you look carefully, now you might have to see this on your big screen. So if you're watching this on the podcast version, you might want to go to the YouTube version. But you can see that there's like a little kind of cubby hole in the mountain, carved into the mountain. And that was... um you know, this was all a, a, a kind of an ancient temple area, temple to Zeus and a temple to the god Pan. And this was thought to be the gateway to the underworld or the place of the dead. And so here is Jesus delivering this speech and he's standing in front of all of these pagan temples. And he turns to the apostles and he says, who do you say that I am? And I said, you're the, you're the Messiah, you're the living God. And then he says, on this rock, Peter, I will build my church. And he's saying this right in front of these pagan temples. And he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When we think about this, he's talking about the place of the dead. And he's saying right in front of what pagans thought was the entry point to the place of the dead that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So this is a very interesting scenario where Jesus decides to make this declaration about his 
ministry and what the church would be. It is going to be so disruptive that it is going to attack all of these demon gods, all of these demon temples. It is going to be a force, an unstoppable force that where Jesus will dwell with his people. Okay, this is what the foundation of the church will be. This declaration of Peter saying, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. That is what the foundation of the church will be. Okay, let's keep going, Bob, and go to the next slide. We're going to skip the video. Um, so when we have a definition of the church, it comes from the Greek, which mean, which is ekklesia. It means out calling. Ek is like the prefix, which means out. And then it's tacked onto the root word, which means calling. So the church, the most literal definition is that we are the called out ones. We are called out as a congregation or an assembly of all the people who have been called out from the world by God. Now, interestingly, this is also the same Greek word that was used when they translated the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament. When it was translated into Greek, that's called the Septuagint. And what they did was whenever Israel was called the assembly of God, they also used this word ecclesia in the Septuagint to describe the people of God. So there is a bit of a continuity, I think, of that God has always had an assembly of people. And Israel was um, a light to the nations under the new covenant, we are called out from among the nations to be a nation within the nations. And this is what it means to truly be the church of God. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. And um, I believe Bob has this in the Greek, so you can see it here. And this is at the very beginning of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And what I want you to notice here is it says the church of God. You can see the word ecclesia there in verse two. And it, so it is a local church, the church of God that is in Corinth. It is a local place. Okay. So there you go. Thank you, Bob, for hovering over it. That makes it super clear. To those sacrificed in Christ and called to be saints together with all those in every place who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So what Paul is saying here is that there is this local church in Corinth, but then there is also this group who are called to be saints together in every place. So this is where we get the idea of what we call the local church versus the universal church. The church of God is those who have been sanctified. And those, Bob, you could put the next slide up. The church of God is those who have been sanctified or set apart in Jesus. And so when we think about the word church, one thing that's super helpful to remember is that there is the universal church and there is the local church. So what we saw in Corinth there is the lo local church. This is a local manifestation of the universal church. The universal church is the composition of all Christians in all times and all places. So when we talk about the church, what we're talking about 
It is the called out ones. We're called out from among the nations, all the nations. And then we gather together as local churches. So there's the universal church that consists of all the saints who have been set apart in all times and all places. That's the universal church. And then we have the local manifestations like the church in Corinth. Okay. All right. So then we also think about, and Bobby, go on to the next slide, is individually, we are saints. It says saints um, in some traditions refers to, you know, a particular title of St. Matthew or St. Luke. They're people that the, that, you know, in ancient faith church traditions recognize as these are very holy people. And so they, they have a special title. But when the apostle Paul uses the term saints, what he's talking about is individuals who are Christians. And so individually we are the saints to be a saint is to be set apart. It is to be set apart from the world that we are fundamentally different than non-Christians. But then corporately, we are the church, and we're going to develop that a little bit more. So I'm going to just check the comments really quick. All right. Great to see everyone checking in. Thank you so much. And uh, Amber says, this is a topic that makes me hesitant. It's a touchy subject for many. Interesting. I'd love to hear more, Amber, of why you think it's a touchy subject. Tell me more. Um, why are we skipping the video? For the sake of time. Um, so, yes. All right. Let's keep going here. So back to my professor's very interesting question, which is, how do I know if if I have a church or a baseball team or a 12-step program, how do I know that I have a church? We've talked about a few things here, you know, that there's the universal church, there's the local church, there's um, the, the there's kind of this collective group identity, which we're going to talk more about. We have universal, the universal church with local manifestations. So let's keep going and see if we can answer this question. All right, here is where it begins, is what is a church? A church is not primarily a location. It is not even primarily what we do. It is an identity first, okay? And I have just a few of the titles that the New Testament uses to describe the church, this identity that we, ha we have. I already mentioned that we are the called out ones. That's what literally the word church means, ecclesia, called out ones. That we have been sanctified or set apart. We are saints, okay? We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are family. We are a spiritual family. We are the household, God's household. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are saints. We are justified. We are living stones. We are citizens of heaven. These are just a few. This is just a sampling of the identity statements of what it means to be the church. And so I'm going to look through some scriptures here and that we're going to go through together. And we're going to start in Ephesians chapter two. And I'm going to read a series of, of verses here. I'll try to remember to shout out the references in case you're um, listening to the podcast. I'll do my best. And I believe all of these are going to be in the English standard version. So we're starting with Ephesians chapter two, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. So outside the covenant, we are called strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So Ephesians is awesome because it offers so many of these compare and contrast statements. You once were, but now you are. 
These are critical identity statements. And this is the foundation of what it means to be the church. Colossians chapter 1, verses 11 to 13. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So here we see this idea of to be the church, to be God's people, is to be saints and to have been transferred from darkness to the kingdom of God. That is our new citizenship. Romans chapter 8, verse 27, it says, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is what the Holy Spirit does uniquely for the Christian, is that he is interceding for us, helping us pray, helping us express, as it says, with groanings to, to know um, how to pray. And he does this particularly for the saints. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, faith, that's an important one. That faith is, is how the doorway for how you become part of God's church, being rooted and grounded in love. So positionally, to, to be the church is to, to come through faith to the Messiah and being rooted and grounded in love. First John chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is a key identity that we are together children of god we are brothers and sisters that kind of language is all over the new testament that family language all right romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved this is another key word of our identity in christ is that we are saved for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved all right john 5 24 truly truly i say to you whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me as eternal life he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life so again more transfer language we see this as part of our identity um, that we have passed from death to life. And how do we do that? Is because we have believed in Jesus as a Messiah. We have put our faith, hope, and confidence in him. Romans chapter 5, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So here again, we have language of before before Christ, we were enemies. Now we have a new identity that we are reconciled to God by the death of his son and much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we have been reconciled to the Father through the through the sun this is another part or aspect of our identity okay we are forgiven ephesians 4 32 says god in christ forgave you we are forgiven it's another part of our identity ephesians 2 10 we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them First Peter chapter four, verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God, 
supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So those of us who are in Christ, once we come into the church, we are given a gift to serve one another. And we should do that as the Lord supplies strength in order that God may be glorified. All right, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is another critical formula. That is probably the most common way of referring to a Christian and to the church collectively is that we are in Christ. Sometimes Paul says to the saints in Christ at such and such church, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is another descriptor of us, of our identity, that we are born again to a living hope. All right, Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 17, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery. Notice, apart from Christ, you had a spirit of slavery. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Lots of identity statements in there. We are adopted as sons. We call the Father. We call on the Father. We are children of God. We are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. All of these are identity statements. All right. Another one, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So he's chosen us, we're chosen, and that we should become and be holy and blameless, we're predestined, we're adopted, that language again. So that's just a snapshot of what the scripture has to say about our identity. Okay, so... I know it was a lot of scriptures, but what I wanted you to see is that the foundation of the church is the saints. And to, to be a saint is, is an identity. And, and I know that identity is not necessarily a biblical term, but I do think it's a meaningful idea to express um, the objective truth about who God says that we are. Apart from Christ, you were this. Now that you are in Christ, you are this. And this identity and all of these identities, this mosaic of identities, is what makes us a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. And when we gather corporately, this is what makes us a local church body. Okay, I'm going to check the question, the uh, comments here. All right. Amber says, all right. She says, um, earlier she had made a comment. This is a topic that makes me hesitant. It's touchy for many. So she says, as a follow-up, I mean, people get territorial and defensive about their church. Their church traditions become tied to measures of how do I know if you are saved or not? There's a lot of mutual bad faith because of it. Okay, I can see that. Um, so what I'm trying to do here is lay some really solid groundwork for a definition of church that really, honestly, to be a Christian, you kind of have to agree on these definitions. This is so foundational to our identity that this is what it means to be a Christian, no matter what denomination you belong to. If we want to understand what is a church, a church first and foremost is an identity. It is a group of people 
who are at a local location who have come together because they have a particular identity of being in Christ. This is what makes up a church. So when we think about from a biblical perspective, um, the I'm going to have Bob put up a little diagram here um, just to carry these ideas a little bit further. So in this diagram, you can see uh, there's, there's a line, kind of like a timeline. And this would have been the Jewish conception at the time of Jesus of how the history of the world unfolds. There's the age, there's this age, this present current age, and the age to come. And so Jews would have been expecting when the Messiah comes, he will come and this present age will come to an end and he would usher in the age to come. And when Messiah comes, there would be an outpouring of his spirit on all of humanity and there would be resurrection from the dead. What the Jews did not anticipate is, and I'm going to have him put up the, the second figure here, is that there would be kind of this overlap between this age and the age to come. And we call this in theology, the already and the not yet. Sometimes I call it the now and the not yet. There's an old Amy Grant song called the now and the not yet. If you know, you know. Um, but the already not yet is really what happens when Jesus goes around and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God has come. So they were, the Jews were thinking, oh, the age to come, Messiah has come. You know, this is what it's going to look like. So there's this first coming of Christ, Messiah comes, outpouring of the spirit. And then we have the resurrection of Jesus. He's called the first fruits. He's the first resurrected. And that inaugurates the age to come. But what Jews were not anticipating was that middle part of the, the already and the not yet. And that's where we are. We are between the two comings. And we are looking forward to the second coming of Christ and then the resurrection for the rest of us. But how this pertains to our identity in Christ is that this now and not yet, all those identity statements that we just read, the, those are all the identity statements that we get because of the age to come. Those are the things that God has pronounced over us as being objectively true that are part of the age to come. So even though I'm not perfectly blameless, I'm not perfectly holy, I'm not perfectly even a saint, but God the Father sees me through the lens of the age to come, the thing that was inaugurated when Jesus came through his first coming. So this already not yet tension that we live in is that there is an, a, a, an aspect or a sense in which our citizenship has already transferred from darkness to light, from this present evil age to the age to come. The Holy Spirit lives in us as a deposit, it says in the book of Ephesians, it's a deposit that Jesus is coming again and someday we will be raised from the dead, the age to come. So right now I am in Christ. I am all of those titles that I just read. I am forgiven and I am I am saved and, and all of those things. I'm in Christ. I'm a child of God. And those realities all live in me as a Christian and collectively as a church, okay? So when we think about what does it mean to be a church, that's going to have a lot of implications in the activities that we do as a church. Okay, Bob, go ahead and um, put up the next scripture from Ephesians. So this is verses 17 to 21. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you his spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance of his holy people. That's another term for the church. This is the corporate part of it, his holy people. What is this inheritance? This is a hint of the age to come and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Those who believe are the church. They are the Christians. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So Paul right here is is calling upon that framework of this age and the age to come to know that that we are in that that tension. And Paul says he's praying for the Ephesian church that and and notice how all of these things are just all mixed together that that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened in the here and now and in the already, but that um they would, that Christ is already seated at the right hand of the Father, and you know that He has this glorious inheritance, and yet we are His holy people, and so it's it's these two ages on top of each other: the already and the not yet. So Paul continues this conversation a few verses later in Ephesians two, verses four to seven. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. So this is, you know, that precursor that is the age to come, that we will rise again, but we are also spiritually alive right now in this present age. It is by grace you have been saved, and God is raised up with Christ, and he has seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages, he might show his incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So here again, there's there's this already not yet. He says, he has seated us with him in the heavenly realms. This is in the present tense. So there's some kind of a way that I, in, in some mystery, am already seated in the heavenly places, But then in the age to come, I will also receive this inheritance of his incomparable riches. And this is the framework of the New Testament. And the church is this already not yet people. Okay, this is what I'm hoping you're going to start grasping, is that we as Christians and as the, the church corporately as Christians, is that we are the already not people, not yet people of God. There's an aspect of who we are that already our spirit is renewed and that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But in the the, the age to come, there's even, even bigger reality that will be made true, that we will receive this inheritance, these incomparable riches, and that we will rule and reign with Christ. So while we are here on earth, We are living in this present evil age, but there is this aspect of the age to come that is also true about us, living through us, and that we are representing Jesus on this earth. Okay, so let's go back to our chart here of identity. These are all, these are just a slice of our identities, both corporally and individually. This is what it means to be the church. It is this identity. This is the foundation, okay? Now, in the second column, we see the functions. We see that these are the functions of the local church. And it is things like the public worship of God, baptisms, public reading of the scriptures, practicing the Lord's Supper, having a leadership structure of elders and deacons, church discipline, discipling the saints, collecting money for the needy in the church. These are the the God-appointed, God-ordained functions of the church. So what's the difference between 
a church and a baseball team is not the functions. We do have different functions. We don't run around a diamond. <laughs> okay. It is not the functions. It is the identity. When we have this identity, that is what makes us a church. The functions then are an outgrowth because we are these people. Now we do these things, but the functions are not what make us a church. You could have a group of people that consists of just any random people and do some functions like baptism or the Lord's Supper, but it would not be a church if it didn't consist of people with a particular identity, those who are in Christ. So what makes a baseball team is that we do certain functions, but that's not what makes a church. What makes a church is the identity, okay? So finally, let's look at the third aspect of this chart, and that is forms, what I call forms. So forms are things like music styles, preferences, what language the church um, sings in and preaches in, the type of building we might use, or things like sermon props. These are things that vary from church to church, okay? Now, what do you notice? <laughs> Most people choose a church, a local church, where to go? I think based on forms. Most people think about what are the criteria that I'm going to look for in a church? I want to find worship music I like. I want it to be energetic, or I like it to be quiet, or I like guitars, or I like the organ, or I like drums, whatever that is. We often use forms as the weightier matter of how we choose a church. Things like the pastor's preaching style, um, whether he's entertaining, whether he's engaging, whether he's a good storyteller, um, you know, whether I like meeting together in a more functional building or a cathedral, okay? But these are forms. These are more incidental things. If we want to look at what is a church biblically, the weightier matters are identity and functions, okay? Not forms. And yet forms are the things that most people are concerned about. They are usually the things that weigh heavily when we decide to choose a church. So what I want you to, to keep in mind and to begin to reflect on is as you're thinking about a church, choosing a church, thinking about it with identity first, and then the, the forms are an outgrowth of that identity. And does the church perform the actual functions of a local church? Does it consist of believers and does it perform the correct functions? The, the forms... I think we can be a little bit more flexible on. Okay, so when we think about a local church, when we're thinking about, all right, do I change churches? Where do I go to church? The question we want to ask is, what are the necessary elements of a local church? Most often, people find that I find is that they look for things like, well, I want to find a church that's biblically solid. They look for a church where there's good preaching of the word or administration of the ordinances or the sacraments. And what kind of ministerial care can I get there? A lot of times people who are like, okay, I get the forms. I'm not that concerned about worship styles. I can, I can flex with that. But then they're looking at the functions. The problem with that that I've seen in my own experience is that when I only look at the functions and I don't look at identity first, some things can go wrong. So here's a few of the common problems. I wanna to try to see if I can explain this. 
So when we think about identity, if we so radicalize individualism over identity, this is what I call the golf course church syndrome. And this is when you hear people say, well, my church is I go for a hike in the woods or my church is I go play golf on Sundays, you know, because I'm a Christian and, you know, it's me and Jesus and that sort of thing. And this is where we miss out on the corporate part of the identity. We so focus on the individual identity that we forget about the corporate aspect of being the church. And so the church is, while it consists of individuals, it's not merely individual. Being an individual doesn't make you a church. To be a church is to have that corporate aspect of meeting together and being together, okay? So that's one of the common problems is individual before identity. Another common problem that I see is purpose before identity. And this is where you might go to a church where they perform the functions of a church, but they're mixed up on the identity. And this is, all I did a whole podcast a few months ago on the belong, believe, behave model and my problems with that and how that that model of church where we belong first and then we believe and then we change our behavior. That model is completely inconsistent with the idea of identity as being foundational. This is the seeker-sensitive model. Purpose before identity, where we get together and we all belong. We, we hang out. We have a common purpose together. We're not putting our identity in Christ first. Rather, we're putting our functions first, what we do rather than who we are. So this is another very common problem when we that, that can arise when we don't have clarity about identity first. Next is the growth before identity problem. So the first was the individual before identity, then purpose before identity. Now I'm going to talk about growth before identity. And this is the megachurch model. This is where we want to like amp up the the forms of the church. We want to have great engaging sermons and sermon props and fun stories and a light show and smoke and all of this stuff to get people to come into the church because we think like the, the, the point is the growth is getting big numbers and bringing them in. This is growth before identity. No, we want to focus on discipling people to understand first who they are in Christ. Coming to church does not make you a Christian. Coming to church and even participating in the functions of a church does not make you a Christian. We have to think about how do we disciple our people to understand their identity first. Next, another common problem that I see when we don't put identity first is what I call monetary success before identity. And this, I think, is the problem with the prosperity gospel in those churches where we're going to focus the message on helping people have financial success, helping the pastors have affluence, and putting that before identity. No, that's what we see in the New Testament is sharing of resources, but that is targeted and shared among Christians. It's something that's voluntary and not um, forcibly done under compulsion or anything like, of, like that. And so we want to think about identity first. Identity first before monetary success. Finally, is tradition before identity. And as much as I have appreciation for the ancient faith streams and things like the ancient faith liturgy, there is a time when sometimes keeping the tradition can become more important than identity. And this is one of the pitfalls of, I think, when we 
don't have clarity when we put, again, functions before identity. So we're handing out the, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper to anybody who's there because that follows the liturgy or baptizing people because they're there. That follows the liturgy. But we have to make sure that we're discipling our people to understand their identity first. We're not just keeping the tradition for the sake of the tradition. Rather, we're baptizing and having the Lord's Supper with people that we know and we have identified properly as being in Christ. So those are some of the some things to think about and to to consider about outcomes where things can begin to get skewed when identity isn't first. Okay, let me read a few comments here before we sign off. Melissa says, I recently started going back to church a few months ago, and I think I'm in a seeker-sensitive church and is mostly focused on numbers. I might need to change churches. Yeah, that's a tough one. You want to look for you know a church that's really going to disciple you. And Melissa, if you didn't catch the previous stream uh, that I did last month on how to find a church or what to look for in a church, that might be of some practical help. Um, I have a whole playlist now on my channel about church life. You can catch uh, the interview that Monique and I did recently with our home church pastor, Brett Kunkel, had a lot of helpful ideas and stay tuned to the end. I am going to mention a helpful resource. Jen says this chart is super helpful in articulating things my family has observed and has been thinking about and finding a new church. Yes, I find that many Christians either focus on forms or functions, but things have to start with a conversation about identity. And again, a good follow-up to this discussion would be my previous podcast on Are We All God's Children and my comments on the, the belong, believe, behave model that is just so prevalent out there in evangelicalism. The church I was invited to participate in our local church village music festival, I showed up and they were playing Nirvana and Weezer songs. That's highly interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, you might uh, want to think about doing something else there. Let's see. Jennifer Shotwell says, is there a serve and get plugged in before identity model? I struggled with the being a children's director, pastor, wanting just anyone to sign up when they actually needed to grow in the Lord. Yeah, I think that, I think if I understand your comment, Jennifer, what you're saying is, uh, and I think this was sort of my point in the previous podcast about, um, and maybe one of the moderators can um, put it in the chat of the one I did on, um, are we all God's children? Because that model of, of belong first before you believe, I think this is the exact scenario that causes confusion because you have people coming into the church that are being told that they belong first, but they haven't made a commitment to Christ. So they're not in the faith. They don't have the identity and they, they need to first come to faith, get discipled and then serve. But because we've introduced, and here's where not having identity first causes confusion and mix up because we have a bunch of people running around our local church that aren't actually in the faith. They aren't in Christ. They aren't saved. They aren't forgiven. They aren't predestined. They aren't um, created for his workmanship. Like they haven't made that transfer from the kingdom of darkness to light. They are just hanging around, coming to the building, but they are not actually part of the church. Hopefully that gets to your comment. All right. I think that's it for now. Well, I hope you found this helpful. Um, I do want to let you know that I have a new online class available. It's on demand. I'm running a special this month. It's called God's Big Story. I just finished teaching this class. It's an awesome class. If you really want to do a deeper dive in understanding how to better interpret the Bible, this is the class for you. So you can go to my Theology Mom website and click on the classes page and you'll be able to see the class. 
Again, it's called God's Big Story. I am running a special this month. If you have a high school student that you are homeschooling, um, I'm doing a buy one, get one free. So if you sign your high school student up for the class, and it's on demand, so you can start at any time with them, you will get the class for free as the parent, and you guys can both go through the class together and talk about it and process it together. If you want to do it for your co-op, I'd be open to that. Just shoot me an email and I can tell you how to do that. But the God's Big Story class is the first class I've ever opened up to high school students. And so if you want to get your student in there, sign up during the month of July. You're, you can get uh, buy one, get one free, and I will add you to the class and you can do it along with your student. The other thing I wanted to close out with is to remind you about Walt Russell's very helpful book, Sustainable Church. If you want to do a deeper dive into what is a church, what does a healthy church look like, what does a New Testament church look like, this is a super helpful book. Um, and again, it's called Sustainable Church by one of my mentors, Dr. Walt Russell. He's the one who taught me um, how to interpret the Bible, hermeneutics. He was my hermeneutics professor. He was uh, my first boss at Biola. And um, his book, Sustainable Church, is extremely helpful. All right, I'm gonna check the comments one more time. And Young is there and asking, how do you know that the church's priority is on the identity? Forms and identity are not mutually exclusive. Um, no, they are, they are not always mutually exclusive, although sometimes they can be, depending on what the form is. Um, I would say how you can know whether a church is really emphasizing identity is, first of all, if they have this whole like belong before you believe model, then they're not strong on identity. If they want to invite people to come participate in ministry, even before they've made like a clear profession of faith, and you know are getting discipled and have been baptized and all of that then they're they're probably not on the identity model putting identity first that would be a huge red flag for me um you know if they are a church that really carefully differentiates between the, the local church is here to disciple the saints that's why we exist we don't exist to attract people from the outside world into the church. The church is not for evangelism. The church is for equipping the saints to go out and do evangelism, okay? So if you're in a church where it's all about this attractional thing to bring non-Christians into the church, that's a church that's probably not focused on having identity first. Um, but if you're in a church where they're equipping you and training you on this is how you do evangelism so that you can go out and share your faith, then that's that's a good solid church. Okay, hopefully that helps Young um, address your question. And again, I will continue this theme next month on the church. I'll have a couple more teachings in August. I'm gonna be doing a deep dive on church leadership and why I really truly think that it is the key to having a healthy church. And one more thought I want to leave you with today is that if you aren't currently involved in a biblically solid, emotionally healthy church, ask the Lord to help you find one. Because you can't be a spiritually healthy person if you don't have meaningful involvement in a local church. And by meaningful involvement, I don't mean just going on Sunday mornings. You have to go be known. You have to be known by other people and by the leadership. And by being known, I mean, even your struggles. And if you don't feel safe to share your struggles, you know, work on that. See if these are safe people that you can maybe grow with in that area or whether they're just not safe people and maybe you need to think about a different church that's more spiritually healthy and emotionally healthy. But the idea of the local church is that is your lifeline. You cannot be... There is no concept in the New Testament of the Lone Ranger Christian, the golf course Christian. Like the golf course cannot be your church. That's There's no biblical category for that. The New Testament only knows of people who are in Christ coming together and 
living together, working together, helping each other grow in the Lord, discipleship, and all of those things that I listed in the functions, okay? You need that meaningful involvement if you're going to be a spiritually healthy person. You cannot make it on your own. So if you don't have that church right now, ask the Lord to guide you to one in your area uh, so that you can stay strong. Remember to share this teaching with a friend. Hopefully you'll share it with your pastor too. And I want to say good afternoon and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.